was one of the most exciting periods of my life, incredibly busy. Um, but our goal was to get screening for emotional mental health disorders into pregnancy as routine. We put our recommendations at the end of the five years, they actually got accepted. Um, and it's very unusual in a researcher's career to have such a rapid turnaround of your research results to be put into practice. So that was incredibly gratifying. It's not faultless by any means, but screening is across Australia um, and it really put emotional health in pregnancy on the map. Hello and welcome to our second episode. Thank you for being here. We are so appreciative. The support from our previous episode was just absolutely incredible. Um, we're literally so glad there were some messages. So many of you guys were able to learn and take away into your own life and it just means so much to us. If you're new here, check out our trailer to find out more about our mission and some of our special guests. And a reminder to please leave some feedback via our form or message us because we'd just love to hear from you. I'd like to start by acknowledging and paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land we stand on and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Joining me for this interview is Simran and Tess, who are both part of our SISOM team. Hi, my name is Simran and I'm one of SISOM's academic team leaders. Hey, I'm Tess and I've been part of the academic team for SISOM this year and I'm very grateful to be part of this conversation today. Special thanks goes out to the lead sponsor of our podcast, PIF, the Psychiatry Interest Forum, who have helped us out. SISOM has received Australian government funding administered by the Rural Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists under the Specialist Training Program. PIF have been amazing, so feel free to check them out and all their resources. And before we go any further, like last time, I would just like to preface that in this episode, there will again be discussions of mental health and notably now regarding perinatal mental health with regards to mental health around pregnancy and after childbirth. The description of this episode will have some more details. And again, we really encourage you to please reach out to support if you feel that you need it and to only listen in if you feel comfortable and able to do so. So today we're going to unpack the world of perinatal psychiatry, focusing in on the role of a perinatal psychiatrist and discussing some perinatal mental health disorders. We're going to be addressing the stigma and also discuss some insider advice on entering the training program here in Australia. And I will say our special guest is pretty involved in the process. So there's some good tips and tri tricks coming if you listen in. So today, let's start the conversation. Let's break down the misconceptions and let's learn more about perinatal mental health and psychiatry. Now the time has come. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to introduce our special guest, someone who has pretty much seen and done it all when it comes to this field. So we're very, very excited. We have Professor Anne Buis. Anne is a professor of women's mental health at Melbourne Uni and a psychiatrist who particularly specializes in postpartum psychiatric illness. She's a dedicated researcher leading the Beyond Blue postnatal depression program from 2001 to 2005, which provided absolutely groundbreaking insights into this area. On top of all this, she's an incredibly avid author who has published many novels, in particular, some focusing on perinatal forensic psychiatry, which have done amazingly well. At the moment, Anne oversees a perinatal outreach program in, and is also involved in doing things like parenting assessments um, and providing expert evidence for protective services and the courts in cases of, of mental illness and abuse. 
That is a very, very brief overview of a long career of dedication and accomplishment. So thank you so, so much for being here with us today. And we're very grateful. Um, and I think it'd be great to start off with a bit of a broad question, but I guess just handing over to you to get an insight into your journey to getting to where you are today. So I'll hand over to you. Okay, a pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. Um, that was a big request that could take the next 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll try and be a little briefer than that. Uh, just maybe to start with the sort of work that I'm doing currently, just to kind of get a bit of a taste and flavour for people, is I only work with pregnant and postpartum women and their babies um, and their partners. So it's very much psychiatry related around the time of having a baby. So that does include a number of diagnoses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, but it's largely depression and anxiety and it's largely focused on women with, with relatively traumatic childhoods because that's what gets stirred up when you have a baby. So um, this may start in pregnancy, it may start postnatally. Uh, whenever that is that I get involved um, is, is when we start to explore what the best diagnosis and treatment options are. For many, many years, um, I ran mother-baby units, so inpatient units. And right this week, I happened to be running the Austin one, um, but that's just because the person who normally runs it is in um, quarantine. So I usually run the outreach um, program, and that's um, a very, very small part of the program. And back running inpatients, you get quite a diverse or a more seriously mentally ill group. But the other work that I do uh, is with medico-legal um, work around perinatal psychiatry. Now, this includes a few criminal cases, so infanticide cases. I think I had one kidnapping, um, a couple of murder cases, um, but it's all related to the perinatal period. And I also more, much more frequently, do uh, services for um, assessments for protective services. So this is parenting assessments in families where mental illness is an issue um, and the courts, I'm looking to advise the, the courts as to uh, the risks and uh, where the mental illness and what treatments um, might alleviate, where mental illness fits in and where the treatments may alleviate any risks. Um, so that's, that's what I do day to day. Um, and since uh, for quite a few years now, I've only worked part-time in the public sector. Um, before that, I was full-time for, for many, many years and did half-time um, at a private mother-baby unit, half-time at a public mother-baby unit. So I've had a bit of experience um, across both of those sectors, but really only in perinatal since I qualified as a psychiatrist. So if we go back um, to how I got there, um, I certainly didn't start out to be a psychiatrist, um, let alone a perinatal one. Um, I got into medicine and um, had, hadn't thought about it probably all that hard as perhaps um, people back then didn't. Um, occasionally still happens these days. Um, it was still tough to get into and a tough course back then. It was actually six years. But uh, you didn't have to do an undergrad course. Um, you just went straight into it. I was actually very young, uh, but the main reason really was my dad was a doctor um, and that was kind of mum had been a nurse. So I didn't know much else, didn't think about it all that much, thought about being a general practitioner. But once I got through medicine, 
found in my intern and the subsequent year particularly, the intern year I just found hard work, um, didn't expect it to be enjoyable, that was okay, um, but I did expect to start enjoying what I was doing in my second year out and I was in the training program for general practitioners and found I didn't enjoy pretty much anything uh, and I started to really rethink um, what I wanted to do with my career. And while I was thinking maybe I'd go back to university and study something completely different, um, I was doing a three-month rotation into psychiatry and that's when, wow, this is what I want to do um, and I've never regretted that. So uh, it, if it hadn't been for that rotation, I'm not sure where I would have ended up, but uh, I'm extremely pleased I did uh, and got into the training program the following year and trained at La Rundle, which has now been turned into flats. Um, and uh, in my final year there, um, there was a mother-baby unit at La Rundle and I was the senior registrar working with Lorraine Denistein, who was a bit of the, the matriarch of mother-baby units um, Australia-wide. And so uh, she then was starting up a unit or a clinic to begin with and then a unit at the Mercy in East Melbourne and needed a young psychiatrist to, or needed another psychiatrist to run it, and I offered and uh, never looked back. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. That was a good short rundown into everything that's been happening so far. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about, I guess, let's start with your work now at the moment. So you mentioned assessing pregnant mothers and their babies. Can you talk to us a bit about, um, I guess, some of the mental health challenges that some of the patients you, you work with face and, and how you assess them and, and provide support? So, look, look, certainly you need to make a diagnosis. Um, you need to know what you're dealing with and you need to exclude some, some of the concerning um, possibilities. And by the time the, the woman arrives in your office, you, or you, you're there in the ED department or wherever it is you're making that assessment, you've already got a little bit of information and you tend to have your, your heading in one or another direction. Um, postnatally, there's a rare condition called postpartum psychosis um, and you want to make sure you don't miss that because that is a psychiatric emergency and it requires very prompt treatment, usually inpatient, and uh, it, it's, it puts the mother potentially at risk and but also her baby. So that's kind of the one you really don't want to miss. And look, occasionally um, women who have never been psychotic before can get become psychotic in pregnancy, but it's much more common in that month after having a baby. So that assessment would cover mood um, and anxiety, which are usual common presenting features at that time. But we'd be doing a lot of questions regarding psychotic symptoms as well, um, less if it seemed very obvious that the affect, that because you're looking at the patient, you're seeing how agitated they are, how um, guarded they are. You're making a, a real assessment of what, if you think they're being genuine, um, and a lot of people with postpartum psychosis can cover up some of the symptoms um, and you want to be sure you explore those. But if it becomes pretty clear that it's uh, more in the depression, anxiety, you'll do a further assessment. You will certainly do a risk assessment of um, risk to self because anxiety disorders and depressive disorders carry um, a risk of suicide as well. So you're going to do a very thorough risk assessment, um, risk to both mother and baby. Um, and then having made a tentative diagnosis, uh, then you look at what the best treatments 
likely to be. And look, a vast majority of women that GPs see with postnatal depression and anxiety do not need to come into hospital. And quite a few of those won't need medication either. By the time they get to see me, they're likely to need inpatient and they're likely to need um, medication of some sort. Though occasionally um, we're able to manage people without um, any medication. Uh, obviously, psychotherapies take longer. Um, and inpatient treatment may not be the best way to, to do that. But we also have a baby in this mix and we have to keep the baby in mind. And often it's the baby that is triggering lack of sleep. Um, so often if we bring someone into hospital, we'll give them a, a night or two's really good night's sleep, look after baby for them and then do a reassessment. And what looks like a depressive or anxiety disorder may suddenly look like a lesser adjustment disorder. And so we can think, well, actually, maybe we don't need medication, if the woman, particularly if the woman doesn't want it. Um, as, as part of whatever treatment you're giving, um, it, it's sort of a multi-pronged and psychosocial um, sort of aspects, uh, biopsychosocial, um, and each link looking at the biological, the psychological and the social aspects and probably perinatal illness more so uh, because there are so many unique stresses around the time of having a baby. Uh, it's often a time people are moving house, um, often the time that the, the partner is just taken a new job and is working extra hard and has extra long hours just when they're needed at home. Um, if one of the risk factors is not having supports and perhaps not having your, your parents around or, or bad relationship with them. So looking at those supports and the stresses of not being able to have anyone come and say, hey, I'll take baby off you um, while you just get a good night's sleep. So investigating all of the, the, the holistic sort of aspects around why they've presented right now and the sort of risk factors they had for this illness. And quite often that stems back to childhood with early childhood trauma, not necessarily severe trauma, uh, though we get that as well. But sometimes, you know, parents that were doing their best didn't manage to do good enough um, and things like bullying at school uh, can really play in to a uh, development of a personality structure that uh, has left these women at vulnerable to anxiety and depression. Uh, and sometimes their relationship with their partner is another real risk factor, either because the partner has depression or anxiety or there is domestic family violence, um, and all of that needs assessment, some of which you won't get in the first interview, but as an inpatient, you'll get a much better feeling as you see them for, for solid periods of time. And if not, and you're doing it as an outpatient, you'll, you'll do that over a couple of at least two, three appointments. I've got a bit of a question about... Um... You know, you mentioned that it's not just that you're treating the mother in a perinatal psychiatry, you know, you know you're know, you also making sure that the baby's okay and the bonding's occurring well. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to, you know, why is it important that you keep the mother and the baby together in those units and why that's so important to, um, I guess, both the health of the mother and the child? Okay, a great question. Um, and the, the unit, at most of these units are called mother-baby units. We actually call ours parent-infant because we think the partner, not, not that there always is a partner, but the partner's a big part of this as well or can be. Um, so there's two things going on here. One, if we just look at from the mother's point of view, is the baby is often, not always, but often a trigger. So you could bring them in to, if there's, 
and some women are happy to be separated from their baby. You could bring them into a unit, treat them. But what we what we know from sort of history is that they're then more likely to relapse and you send them back to the trigger that hasn't been dealt with. So you're also not upskilling them. So there's all these new skills of um, and confidence in being a mum that um, if you separate them from baby, you're not only not giving them skills, you're adding in some guilt factor um, as well quite often. So we like to look um, and... I can't remember if it's Bowlby or Winnicott, um, said that there's no such thing as a baby. Um, there's always a baby and a carer, or I think he said a baby and a mother. Um, and the baby needs that, that carer. And, yes, technically someone else can look after that baby, but the attachment to the primary caregiver is really critical for that baby's um, development in that first year of life. And if it gets disrupted um, and not worked on, uh, then it might go off on a, a sort of the wrong trajectory from there on inwards. So we prefer to keep mum and, and baby together. Mum may not be well enough to do that care. Um, of course, for some of our more severely unwell women, we might be needing to do parenting assessments and really making an assessment of whether this mother can ever care for this baby. For instance, for some a single mum who has had a long history of schizophrenia that has never been stable because she hasn't been taking medication, then there's going to be real questions about this baby's safety and the ability to go home with this mother. Um, mostly uh, that's not what our job is about, about separating mums and babies, but certainly we do do assessments for protective services and make recommendations and are trying to support that bond and increase that. But very occasionally we'll need to say, well, actually this illness is too, she's too unwell. She doesn't have enough supports. Uh, we're not going to be able to do that. So you, you're helping the baby, um, but you're helping upskill mum and work on the baby as a trigger slash the, um, the, the sort of psychological things from that woman's childhood that may be being brought up. Often a crying baby is a real... Well, a crying baby is a trigger for everyone and that, you know, if you're in a restaurant and there's a baby crying, um, everyone goes, um, but this is a different sort of trigger. This is a, a, a something when it gets woken up inside that sort of when you essentially were left as a child to cry and not comforted, um, you won't remember that as in an in a, a, a actual memory that you can pinpoint, but your body is going to remember it um, and you're emotionally going to remember it because your own attachment status is now being kind of really stirred up. And if it isn't a secure attachment, as is the case in most of the mums I see, then we're looking at what's happening with your feelings of, of insecurity um, and how they, they might go in recur through the intergenerations and we want to stop that intergenerational transmission. Thank you so much for that Anne that was actually quite um, educational from for me as well like knowing how you actually work with these patients and what your role is. In addition to the tremendous work that you do as a perinatal psychiatrist you also um, I know you work as a director of the Beyond Blue postnatal depression program. Can you also kind of give us a bit of you know, an insight into your work as a director and what is your role in that aspect? Okay. Um, it was a big kind of omission there, wasn't it? It's not a current role um, and that that's kind of perhaps why it's not in my head right at the moment. Um, but it's obviously, as an academic, um, it has been a huge part of my career doing research and teaching too. Uh, and teaching I've always enjoyed, 
So I kind of, it's interesting that, you know, you never get taught to teach, uh, though I did do some extra teaching, um, extra uh, sort of seminars and things to learn how to teach, uh, which I think is helpful. But being passionate about your work is perhaps one of the best ways of being a good teacher. Um, but from an academic, from a research point of view, uh, that's obviously a huge part of the world of academe. And in medicine, that tends to get squashed in somewhere. Uh, like as a, a psych registrar, you need to do a scholarly project. So that's a, a small research project not necessarily to turn registrars and psychiatrists all into researchers, but to give a real appreciate, and medical students have to do the same sort of thing, to make a real understanding of how to evaluate research. Um, and even though I know nothing about infectious diseases, my ability to analyse data on from research papers on vaccines, for instance, let's bring it into the current to, you know, and, and understand what the health professionals are saying with regards, though this is more epidemiology, um, you need skills to make sense of stats, stats, and um, no one is good at stats, um, apart from statisticians. So, but at least we're academics have a, a good solid basis in understanding that. So, I was very passionate about research really from quite an early time in my career. And um, I was really taken with the fact that all of my patients had abuse histories. And my hypothesis was that I really thought it was sexual abuse was a huge issue for postnatal depression. Um, and I was wrong. Um, but I decided I was going to do this in my own time. I didn't actually have funding for it. And that was the basis of what became my doctoral thesis. Um, and... I was wrong about it being just sexual abuse. It's any type of abuse, emotional, physical um, and sexual abuse or in childhood, um, really. And we're now, this is kind of going back to the 90s. And back then, we didn't have a concept of complex post-traumatic stress disorder that we do now. And that was really the early research in making sense of trauma being a factor in why people get depressed, anxious, and develop borderline personality structure. So that was my first research project. Oh, actually, that's not quite true. It was my second. My first was my master's, um, a research master's. And I got funding from a drug company, which was the kind of the main easy funding to, to get. And I looked at drugs going into breast milk because that was a really important thing to be able to tell our patients, yes, this drug is safe or no, it's not. Um, so that was my first project. Then I, I funded my own um, in doing the my MD thesis, which was the doctoral thesis um, then. And... Then um, I got very heavily involved in, and I would re recommend to everyone when they get passionate about something to follow their passion. There's a lots of conferences around and lots of organisations um, and about a group called the Marseille Society, which is an inter international society with a very strong Australian component that is perinatal mental illness. So for for any uh, nurses, psychologists, OT, psychiatrists that work with perinatal mental illness. And so I got went to these conferences, um, very initially had a lot of encouragement from a fabulous professor um, in the United Kingdom uh, and met a lot of colleagues and got very excited about their research, uh, had this great opportunity to kind of bounce ideas off people. Um, and then... I think we we heard about Beyond Blue starting with Jeff Kennett 
and heard he'd put a tender out. And I looked at the tender um, because you're always putting in for NHMRC grants, which are very hard to achieve, to get. It's a lot of work putting in a grant anywhere. And I looked at what um, the Beyond Blue had put out, what they wanted, and I thought, I can tick all of those boxes. They wanted something that was Australia-wide. They wanted it, it, it to be practical. They wanted sort of a good evaluation and they wanted sort of outcome measurements, but a big vision. And I had big vision um, and I had all these Marseille Society members um, in every state of Australia and, oh, and multidisciplinary. And because the Marseille was multiple dis disciplinary I was able to you know find a psychologist in one state psychiatrist in another um, and a nurse in another to have this whole team and brought it together um, and I then got some training to actually present um, to do the cell if you like um, and because Jeff Kennett was a government person it was a very different um, way to do it than presenting to NHMRC um, so, uh, I got training by someone who'd worked in government and knew how to, how to, how to present to Jeff. Um, and so I went in and presented and got a $4 million grant to run the Beyond Blue program, which was one of the most exciting periods of my life, incredibly busy. Um, but our goal was to get screening for emotional mental health disorders into pregnancy as routine. Um, and postnatally as well. We had a very simple tool already developed and well recognised. Um, we knew, well, we, we felt we were convinced that maternal child health nurses and the pregnancy clinics could do this without extra staff and money um, and that everyone could do it. And the beauty of, of Beyond Blue was Jeff Kennett had been a politician. There were politicians on the board. It was bipartisan, so both sides accepted it, which means that when we put our recommendations at the end of the five years, they actually got accepted. Um, and it's very unusual in a researcher's career to have such a rapid turnaround of your research results to be put into practice. So that was incredibly gratifying. It's not faultless by any means, but screening is across Australia um, and it really put emotional health in pregnancy on the map. So that was a huge part of, uh, and I've done other research projects, but that was that was the big one. Yeah, no, that was absolutely amazing. Like knowing that you've been able to achieve so much in that role and make such a huge difference um, at the level of like the entire country is amazing. Um, sorry, Sartre, did you want to say something? Yeah, no, I just want to say a massive congratulations. Like that sounded absolutely amazing. Um, and it just, I think it shows, especially to uh, students or any stage of, of people's career that, when you do are interested in something or passionate that the outcomes can be really, really quite successful. Um, and especially if you invest some, some good time into it. So massive congratulations. Um, I wanted to, in terms of the segue into this, I, I, last week we had a, um, a bit of a talk to an addition psychiatrist, Professor Lubman, and he was talking to us about how within psychiatry as a, as a broad uh, field, that addiction psychiatry is uh, even stigmatized within psychiatry. Um, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on, I guess, the stigma around psychiatry, but specifically whether your experiences have seen perinatal psychiatry being stigmatised and, and your experiences with that. Um, look, unfortunately, I think it still is stigmatised and you still have the mental health commissioner saying, don't tell future employees if you've got a mental health history. Um, 
I was very gratified to interview a potential registrar who was very upfront about their mental health issues. Um, I thought that person was very brave, um, but I thought it was a fabulous thing to do. And honestly, if we can't um, take that into account and see how lived experience can be put in to a profession and used in a really successful way, then who else can? But um, it's, it's still got a bit of a way to go. I mean, I think the beauty is at least well, when I got into psychiatry, it wasn't all that hard to get into. And 10 years before that, there were a whole lot of people that did psychiatry because it was the only specialty they could get into and perhaps some of them weren't all that suited. Um, now it's, it's quite competitive. So that's great from us, you know, to know that it's much more popular, perhaps not great if you're trying to get into it, but look, everything is competitive. And if you want something enough and work hard enough, I think everything is, is possible. Um, and to, just to, uh, I'll get back to the, the stigma of, um, PN, of perinatal, but I was just thinking with your, what you were saying before to medical students is absolutely no one in my medical year, we're about to have our 40 year medical reunion, uh, um, which really ages me. Um, I can't imagine one single person in that year would ever have thought I was going to be a professor um, and get it for me. It was just, it was not my personality particularly in me. I was a very, just just got the work done, um, scraped by, by the skin of my teeth, um, never failed by one particular <laughs> third year, but in general got through things. Um, but was not a star. I was never a star as a medical student. I only blossomed, shall we say, once I hit psychiatry and found something I loved. Um, and then I didn't find learning difficult. Um, it was a whole, it was like, me, to me, being a medical student was just hard work. I was learning a whole lot of stuff I was not even remotely interested in. Um, and it, it's still a really good basis, though, for some of the stuff, you know, I under, you know not like understanding research papers about diseases we might be given, but also um, in just understanding the, the neurobiology of mental health disorders. So it's great for that, even though it's not my particular area of interest. I'm much more in the analytic Freudian kind of aspects, but understanding the biology is great. So going back to the stigma um, aspects is when I started in as a, a student in the 80s, um, there was no doubt people were not mentioning. Um, and we did research pro, as part of the um, Beyond Blue, we did focus groups with women and asked them, these were women who had delayed getting treatment and we asked why. And sometimes they delayed to the second child, so it got worse after the second child. And it was, it was very clear that in their minds, they were afraid that getting postnatal depression was equal to being a bad mother. And being diagnosed as depressed was bad, but being diagnosed as a bad mother was even worse. Um, all of these women, with almost no exceptions, all wanted to be good mothers, the best mothers they possibly could be. And they felt incredibly embarrassed about this um, and guilty. And they also thought that people with often um, with people with postnatal depression didn't love their baby. And that's absolutely not true either. Um, in fact, as a trigger, um, it's often over-concern about the baby and the perfectionism of wanting to be the perfect mum that is one of the drivers for, for a lot of people's depression and anxiety. So people were putting the lid on it and there's also a group of people who are terrified of having their ch child removed. Um, so 
In the 80s, a group called PANDA started up, post an antenatal depression association. It was started up by survivors um, with lived experience and it was run almost 24-7 really. They, they, these women put themselves on call answering women's distress calls in the middle of the night. Um, fabulous group, very dedicated, and they did a lot of work and worked with clinicians to get it really on the um, change. We had as part of our Beyond Blue program a whole arm of media um, and media ads um, and really blasted people um, with, with it. And we certainly measured attitude changes and there was a huge attitude change and I think that's maintained. Um, it's certainly not like the 80s. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, um, but it's certainly improved since the 80s. Uh, and, you know, there's always room to improve and keep educating new generations of women, but uh, it, has, it has moved since then. Yeah, that's, that's definitely really good to hear. And I think stigma is just a really, really big issue within, I guess, mental health um, and psychiatry. And it's really important to have that conversation about it. Um, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts and I'm not sure there's anything specifically that we as medical students can do, but is there any um, thing that any advice you have for medical students or just anyone in the community to take steps to try and battle that stigma in any way? Do you have any advice or any um, thoughts on that? Um, well, I think you can certainly follow by example, and I think the more people that we have following by example, and we've, we've had a number of people in um, the arts that, that have done that. Um, Brit Britney Spears, um, in, in many ways, has kind of, but, but perhaps more so Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields wrote a book about her postpartum psychosis, very severe illness. Um, we've had other um you know, well-known people come out and be patrons of Beyond Blue, uh, and that's a and the footy stars that are coming. This is not about perinatal illness, but the footy stars that come out and talk about being depressed. We've had a few politicians able to do that as well. I think we do need to lead by example. I think part of the problem is that, um, and this is going to show my kind of training and bias, um, is if you're you're not given good enough parenting in the, that early year. You've kind of got two main ways of going. I mean, this is obviously a gross simplification, um, but you can either go the the way of um, kind of going round and round in circles, but but engaging people and trying to solve things. And they, these are the people that can be complain and be difficult. And I mean, this is when I'm talking here about the two ways of going, other than if you're not securely attached. If you're securely attached, you learn to negotiate, you learn to, to um, value other people's point of view. But if you haven't got that, the two main ways of going are this kind of getting involved and enmeshed and going around in circles and, and really struggling um, but creating havoc along the way. Or the other way, and this is where the stigma issue becomes the problem, the other way is the avoidant. Um, and there's plenty of medical students with avoidant attachment. Um, and the reason I will say that is because one of the strategies for the avoidant attached child is to succeed. Um, they, they've kind of worked out that their primary caregiver at an early age can't deal with emotional stuff, but is good if they succeed and, and go out and explore the world, world as a baby, build really good towers Whatever it is that they're doing, they get a lot of good feedback from their parents um, and that's the way to feel good about themselves. So that's a great strategy 
um, gets you into medical school sometimes, um, or you know, it, it has a good outcome. But the problem is, it um, as the flip side of it is, you dismiss the importance of emotional life and and see emotionality as being weak. Um, and you're gonna, you've got sort of at least twenty percent of the population with that way of thinking. Um, and it's it's tackling that group, uh, and you know again paramedics. There's a whole lot of professions that this group do really well in that they can bottle up and put the lid on that emotion, but then when something goes wrong in their life, that's when the cracks start to happen, um, and they can't they haven't learnt the skills to deal with their own emotional distress, but they're also disparaging and dismissive of other people's emotional stress and seeing it as weak. Um, And and Australian culture feeds, and other cultures, um, can feed into that, particularly for men, the, the, you know, real he-men don't, you know, cry kind of that stuff. I think we've been a lot better with your generation, bringing them up in general, um, in Australia anyway, that's sort of less gendered, um, allowing you know, in the individual families, it's going to be different, but, you know, that it's okay to cry and that doesn't mean you're weak. Um, so, but we've got a long way to go with that. I think what's really good is that at least, um, like, now people are talking about it more. Talking about men- mental health is considered, is much more well accepted now than it was um, ages ago, um, which I think is a great step forward. And I think you mentioning, you know, what you've noticed in terms of the stigma is, is very, very insightful. Um, I guess I'll also move move forward and just ask you a question. You've you've talked a lot about you know the research that you've done, which is amazing, and also the fact that psychiatry is becoming very competitive. Um, I know a lot of um, friends, including myself, who are very interested in psychiatry, um, and I'm quite interested in perinatal psychiatry. So, for students like myself and um, others, medical students who are interested in entering psychiatry. Do you have any um, tips or suggestions um, to kind of better prepare ourselves to be successful candidates and help ourselves get into the training pathway? And I do a lot of these interviews. So I'm actually doing a bunch of interviews on Monday. <laughs> um, what amazes me about those interviews is how much you guys have packed into your lives. <laughs> it's like the CVs are pretty stunningly you know full of stuff um what's probably the single most important thing is that you've done a rotation in psychiatry um we want to and preferably in acute for me that this is perhaps not true for everyone preferably acute psychiatry um the reason being not necessarily that you want to do that acute psychiatry for all of your life but you have to be able to last it and acute psych wards are confronting for some people. So it's probably good for you to have done that as well to know that you can handle it. Um, it takes a certain personality style. Um, you have to be able to compartmentalise to some degree. So this is where the avoidant attachment can be handy. Um, but you do have to be able to compartmentalise. Um, you do have to be able to deal with the ethical issues of non uh, of compulsory treatment, um, which is a very hot topic with the Royal Commission. And I don't think... You have to be, um, you know, oh, yes, of course. There is a lot of room for this, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement, um, but we do have patients that can be incredibly aggressive, um, that can be scary. Uh, Obviously, there are all things in the wards to put in place that 
it's not going to be a physical risk to you. But you have to deal with all of that. So if I'm talking to a candidate who's lasted that and still wants to do psychiatry, um, that's really good plus for me. Uh, and a, refer a referee that's a psychiatrist um, is also part and parcel of that. Uh, we te everywhere tends to look after their own if they can. So if you've done, if you want to go to the Austin as a registrar, try and get your internship there. Um, like if you want to be a psychiatrist there, try because we'll look after the ones that have, have been, and that's the, true of every major hospital. Um, we'll try and look after our own. Um, but that said, we doesn't mean that you can't, we, we don't take other people. Um, so the other things is that I've been a staggered by a medical students, though I have to say I have interviewed someone recently that stood out for not being able to do this, is that you all seem to have been trained in how to answer these interviews and have thought about the questions that we're likely to ask. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of opportunities you can do that in your psychiatry term, ask about that sort of thing. Um, but you have, we want reflective um, if you're going to be a surgeon, um, you can get away without doing this probably, um, though I'd like you to be a reflective surgeon because they make the best surgeons, the ones who reflect on, on what their patient's feeling and how scared, et cetera. But it's absolutely essential as a psychiatrist that you're ref reflective, reflective about um, the sort of patients that are likely to push your buttons. Um, and if you've never thought of, of that it's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> um, you know, you're still idealizing yourself. Um, it's not about admitting that you're, you know, you've got weaknesses. It's about we all have struggles. Um, I've just debriefed my entire team about, you know, a patient they were really struggling with. Um, and the patients do that. They're, 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 they're angry, they're upset, and they project that into us, and that makes us dysregulated. But there are certain patients that are going to push buttons in us more than others. Now, you might not have the actual answer, but the more insight you have into that and your particular vulnerabilities, um, then the better you're going to come across in those questions. And how important would you say research is to get into the training program? It's not, not if you, I'm interviewing you because I'm thinking everyone comes up, oh, I'm going to do research, and I'm thinking, no, you're not. Mm. <laughs> um, look, it, it is a standard question. Yes, think about it. Yes, we'd love you to do research. But, look, honestly, we're, we're all so sensible. In, or sorry, we live in the real world, and we know as medical students, you know, how much research are you really going to have had time to do? Um, I'm amazed that some of you have got papers published. And, look, if you have, yeah, that's probably going to, it just shows you can squash something extra in, um, which is great, um, but not apps are much the reflective questions and answers are much more important to me. The balanced lifestyle um, and that you play violin, which seems to be a thing for medical students. <laughs> Just, well, actually, there's registrars had two in a row that played violin. Um, that you do other things, that you have a balanced life, that you do try. When I first took over registrars, um, I was really, really keen to have part-time positions. I have to say I, I had young children, so I was thinking of women. Um, at the time, it was a bit gendered, but the very first registrar that came to me that said he wanted to go part-time was a he, and it was because he was a triathlete, um, and he wanted to go and do the Hawaii Ironman or 
whatever it was, which is not my thing, but wow, fantastic. Um, that's something outside of psychiatry that will help you keep a balanced life. Um, so I let him go part-time so he could train for the triathlon or whatever it was you do in Hawaii, Ironman. <laughs> yeah. I guess on this topic that um, you're talking about, like keeping a balanced life and pursuing other interests as well, um, obviously yourself, you're an author and you've had a lot of work as well as in terms of being an author. Can you talk to us a bit about that and how, I guess, what your role is with that, what type of books you've been you've been writing and how you're balancing that as well as, I guess, psychiatry and all the research that's also been going on? So back when I hated my um, second year out, uh, until I started psychiatry, I was actually going to go back and do an arts course with the idea of doing journalism. Um, I think I'd have been a really bad journalist. So, but I, would want, I wanted to be a writer back then um, and just journalism seemed to be the obvious thing to um, study because I didn't kind of think I'd study. And I'd loved English literature at school um, and it seemed like a job that might pay. There were more jobs in journalism back then. Um, so... I put it on hold for a long time because um, not only uh, all of, you know, the research projects and, and, you know, I was fairly ambitious, let's face it. Um, you can't get professor without, you know, being fairly focused and, and ambitious. And I had two kids in the middle of it all. Now, what I would say is I was also very keen to be a mum and I went part-time until my kids went to school. So I, I didn't work type full. So I've got a, I had them two years apart. So there would have been I don't know, at least seven years, I guess, where I didn't work full time and I still got to be a professor. And one of my girlfriends got to be a prof- never went part time. She was full time the whole time. She got to be a professor two years ahead of me. Um, I was happy to live with that um, because being a parent and being there for my children was really important to me. But I also didn't want to be a full-time mum because my work was um, really important too and having that balanced um, where I worked and I was really lucky to have a job where I could do that um, was great. So that really worked well for me in those years. Um, But then once I went to school is when I got the the project, uh, the Beyond Blue project, and had to do a lot of hard work. And it, it worked well that that's when my husband sold his company. So we sort of swapped roles and he did a lot more um, at home, which which worked really well. Um, worked really hard for many years. Um, and then in 2011, I did a, I took a year off, as in I had a sabbatical and long service leave. And in that time, uh, my sabbatical, I did work with an amazing um, professor in in America, but I got to live with her, her and her family for about six weeks while we were finding somewhere to live in New York. And what really struck me was how little time she had for her family and how, in my terms, it was unbalanced. And I then had long service leave and did the Camino de Santiago, which from central France was 2,000 kilometres. And I had a very, very walk over 87 days to think about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I can't remember how old I was, but it was probably a zero birthday um, around about that time as well to really reflect. My kids weren't both at university by that stage, um, so the kids weren't in the mix of the concern. And 
I felt I really wanted to go back and I'd had somewhere in the middle there, I had actually wrote a, written a, a book on psychiatry um, that was about ban- boundary transgressions, fiction, and it had got to the last phase at Random House. So I hadn't completely given it up um, just before, and I submitted it just before I got that big research fund. And when I got the $4 million and a rejection slip from Random House, kind of the writing was on the wall. The wall. It got to the last phase, though, so um, I probably should have kept trying, but it got put on hold for 10 years. And I decided, well, actually, now I'd like to retry really again. And one of the things that inspired me to try again was not just that I felt it was a good balanced life, but my husband happened to have anyone who has Googled me will know my husband happened to have had a very successful book. Um, and not only was it very successful, is it changed attitudes. And it's um, the Rosie Project, which is about, though that's not what he set out to write and he didn't set out to change attitudes, but it's about a guy with Asperger's or high-functioning autism. Um, and the guy is from his point of view and it's he's the hero. And the autistic community really adopted this and said, what a wonderful, positive role model um, we have uh, for, for autism. And so through something, he has got more, changed more attitudes that, than through that book than I have ever done um, through, uh, through anything that I've done in my work. Um, you know, probably getting the, the screening in was a big thing, um, which was a team effort, of course, uh, that we, we did with that. And that was a huge thing. Um, but every patient I see, I might be changing their life. I'm not changing thousands of people's attitudes. So it kind of got me to thinking that, you know, maybe fiction has a role, even if I'm not selling millions of copies like um, he is. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I could write about what I know, which is what you're always told. Um, and I read a lot of crime. It's kind of my guilty pleasure. Um, you know, get why my husband doesn't understand it at all. Um, but it's, it's an escapism. Um, you know, people read romance. I don't, I read crime. Um, and I thought, well, if, you know, I write one of these, but it's, got a psychiatric component and so my heroine Natalie King has bipolar disorder um, so it also got to really explore her experience with bipolar disorder um, and there is no doubt that some attitudes have been you know it's you know it, it's polarized people a little bit um, on occasions my mother's attitude was oh for god's sake she just needs to take her medication or actually no no initially my mother said um, no, she just needs to get, you know, get over it um, and, you know, just do a job and stop all this nonsense. Um, but as she read by the third book, she said, oh, well, actually, yeah, maybe the medication is the answer. So um, Natalie has a bit of an arc. Um, as a lot of people with bipolar, they rally, you know, rail against the diagnosis. Um, there's often a number of relapses where they're playing around with their medication. They often self-medicate. So Natalie is a psychiatrist obviously thinks she can do that. She's very passionate about her work. I never have her doing anything that puts her patients in danger. Um, and she does a lot of good things. Uh, so, and I've got to explore a number of other things. So the most the recent book I wrote, which is not um, Natalie King, is a standalone with a psychologist heroine, um, has mother baby groups. Um, and it explores, a ta- it's, it's still a crime novel. Um, it's about a missing child, um, and but it still explores 
in the background as a theme attachment um, and gives a lot of, you know, really good researched um, information rather than someone who has no idea about mental illness putting it into fiction and getting a whole lot of things wrong. And so now I work part-time in both. Um, so pretty much 50-50, I guess, um, in psychiatry and, uh, and in the other. Yeah, and it's, it's really good to hear that, like, I guess you can have both passions at the moment and, and have both of them in your life. Um, and I think one point that really stuck out to me was um, how, you know, in whatever, like, uh, way you go about it, but, like, books might be one, that you can reach out to so many people and have an influence just because it's your interest, you followed it, and you've decided to put it out there that you can reach out to so many people. Um, and I thought that was a really, really inspiring point that a lot of people would would stick to if, if they are interested in something they have the potential to to pass that on to lots of people and make an impact um, one part of this that I wanted to talk about because you were mentioning how you know you have a really passion for for writing and journalism and and, and that perspective of things is as a psychiatrist and, and in your work managing your own mental health so you know a lot of times people cope with you know pursuing their other interests but I wanted to talk to you about how you manage to separate your own emotions from the patients that you see or the people you come across and preserve your own empathy, your well-being and manage your mental health in those situations. Yeah. Look, and it's it's a really, you know, med students have kind of talked at and about this a lot. And it really is very, very important um, because, you know, patients get to you um, and you need to know your own vulnerabilities, a bit like what I was talking about before. Uh, you won't know them immediately, but they'll become evident as you start working in whatever field you're in, in medicine, and you need to manage those. So very early on, um, I didn't, it didn't always work. I'm not saying this works perfectly, but the idea is um, you don't take work home with you. Um, and if, if you're married to a doctor, I'm not, but if you are married to a doctor, you know, you don't go home and take, talk the cases together. Um, you go home, I get changed when I get home. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, the sloppy gear at home or whatever. The, there's a difference. There's a, a very different feel of who I am in my home environment. Um, of course, COVID and working from your home office has messed that up, but not so critical at the moment because I don't do a lot of that intense therapy work anymore. Um, Getting supervision um, if you're doing therapy is, is really critical and had supervision for many years and provides supervision. Um, knowing um, or oh, exercising regularly. Um, I'm a, I love the gym, still go to the gym very regularly. Uh, so exercise is really important. Having something to look forward to, so always having a holiday. Again, challenging in COVID when you're not game to organise anything. But, um, you know, even if it has to be put off, have that plan, have some holidays, have vacation, ha have something you're doing on the weekend, something a bit more, uh, you know, immediate that you can look forward to, even if it's, you know, just a nice um, uh, glass of wine or something, hopefully not about alcohol, <laughs> having something else, getting together with friends, something that's non-work related. Um, and when you do find a patient that pushes your buttons, um, you know, making sense of it for yourself, ideally in supervision, or if you don't have supervision, going and finding out what's stirring up um, in you. A lot of medical students and doctors um, are very idealistic. You are going to lose patients. You are going to stuff things up. Um, hopefully it's not going to be that major, um, but, you know, 
sometimes people die. Um, certainly sometimes you can't save them. Um, I'm not saying you've killed them, but certainly there are times you cannot save someone and that can be, you know, really, really tough. Um, so knowing knowing yourself and getting that that help around those really tough cases. I mean, I know, for instance, I could not do paediatrics. I particularly could not do paediatric um, oncology. I mean, I can't think of anything worse. Uh, but paediatric oncologists are amazing people. They're empathetic and they manage it. So you've got to have, have something. And I think they would argue that... Um, they work with the families, they work with the child and and really enrich, do their best to save the child and enrich the last days, months, years of that child's life um, and look at life in a very different way that you would have to, to be able to do that. Um, so you've got to find the right way to work within what you're, you're doing. Sorry, I was just going to say that reminds me that when I was doing my psychiatry rotation, um, my other psychiatrist said that, um, you know, there are a lot of patients that can really have a huge impact on you and you can take it home with you. Um, and so he actually recommended that everyone, whether they're doing psychiatry or not, but everyone can benefit from therapy um, and having some sort of outlet to actually get that out of their system, whether it's through having mm -hmm. other things to do, but sometimes even therapy as well can be really helpful. Like it's not just for those who are suffering from mental illness, anyone can benefit from, from therapy because it, it allows them to actually learn to reflect and learn more about their own coping strategies and their thinking patterns. So it's nice to know that you've also got your own way of dealing with these kinds of situations. Because I mean, working so many years, I'm sure you've seen everything from like the really, really bad to the really, really good. And I'm sure there are some stories that you might think to this day that still kind of remind you but it's good to know that you've also got something that you like different ways to deal with it. Mm. And, and it's really important to put things in perspective. I um, mean, I've got a filing cabinet and I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of files and I can go through and I'm really bad on names, but there are a couple of names. If my, I flick past the file, I go, Oh, I remember that one. Um, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not so good. Um, but there are some patients I remember really vividly. Um, probably the patient that, taught me the most was my psychotherapy patient as a first-year registrar. Um, she still rings me two to three times a year. Um, she, you know, she, she really struggled for a very long time, um, but she kept forgiving me when I got it wrong. Um, and me keeping coming back and accepting that was really good for her um, because trust was a big issue for her. She didn't need me to be perfect, um, but she needed me to be there for her. And boy, did she teach me a lot. Um, so the bad experiences can turn out incredibly well, um, but yeah, I certainly needed supervision through all of that. Um, I've never done the therapy route, though. I was going to become a psychotherapist before I decided I'd be an academic instead. And then I was going to do my own therapy. And I think to be a, a, you know, a full-time primary therapist, you do need your own therapy. But I've certainly gone to therapy when I had a particular problem, um, which is different to supervision. And um, I certainly had an issue that intellectually I could kind of analyse, but emotionally I was not. Um, managing well. So I, I had three months with a psychotherapist and that was, was a great kind of insight um, and experience. And there was another experience I went to see someone, it ended up only needing to see them once um, because I'd suppressed 
this grief really about the loss of a patient and as the team leader I'd held everyone else together and got them into it and thought I was dealing with it and it took two years for me to realise I hadn't. And as soon as I realised the degree of what I was holding on to, I went off to see this amazing um, psychiatrist who I have an enormous amount of respect for and he just analysed it in, I'd had two years I guess of sitting on it so he was able to reflect, analyse it and basically fixed me and, and got rid of my anger, which I hadn't even realised was anger, um, in one session. So that was also an amazing experience. Yeah, and I, I really love all that advice in terms of, I guess, managing your own mental health. And it's not just um, in your career, but anyone, even p- p- students who are listening in, managing your own mental health is a, an utmost priority for a lot of people. And um, we all go about it in our own unique ways, whether that be therapy or whether that be other coping resources. So that advice is, I think, really, really helpful um, for people to listen into and, and take on board. Um, I think cumulatively, uh, we could talk for hours, but... Um, I just wanted to say a huge thank you because it's been really, really insightful for us. Um, you mentioned reflection before, and I think a lot of people, whether that be listening or even just myself right now, reflecting on and you know what you've said and the insights you've provided is really, really important. And um, just one of the things that I wanted to say, I really, really like your point about you know following your interests and your passions, um, and and when you do pursue them, the impact you can have on other people and yourself is really, really important. You mentioned before, like as as a medical student, you didn't really know what you were passionate about or what you enjoyed till you entered psychiatry, and I know for myself, but a lot of people have that um, issue and that struggle. It's like, am I really interested in this? Am I not? But then finding that can be really powerful. So I just wanted to say a huge congratulations, but also a major, major thank you for sharing that because um, it's really insightful for us. And, and this hopefully gives you all hope for those of you that are kind of haven't quite worked out the direction yet. There's it still gave time. me a lot of hope. I loved hearing that <laughs> because it really helped me. <laughs> Great. Lovely to meet you and um, all the best with your careers.